It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm good. It's good to hear you're good because I've I've brought you here today to um, let you know that you're fucking fired. <laughs> I've um I've decided that your social media following isn't large enough, and I'm going to replace you with someone with with more followers. Okay. Well, I was thinking Joe Rogan would be my yeah. new co-host. <laughs> Is he available? <laughs> he doesn't know anything about climbing, but it doesn't right. matter because it's, it's all about the feed, mm-hmm. how many followers he has. Yeah. So. Besides, he can learn. Just he can take learn. him to the gym. Yeah. Yeah. So You guys have the same haircut, too. <laughs> I'm not as puffy as he is, though. <laughs> I'm going to just put down, be on the record. That guy's puffy. If there was a podcast with Jason Momoa and Joe Rogan, that would be mm-hmm. the, our alt, our yeah. like metaverse alt. Am I body shaming Joe Rogan? But uh, I think that's okay. Yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, he can handle it. Um, but there is like this kind of puffiness to the CrossFit physique. That, mm-hmm. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, they're jacked, but then, but there's like this added puffiness to it. Well, we're not used to it. Yeah. Because we're just the climbing the way climbing muscles form, I think, is like a little bit different. I mean, I have the puffiness without the musculature, yes. so it's. A, <laughs> You're both. I shouldn't talk. I will never be a fitness influencer. No, Let's I put don't it that think way. So. No offense. Hazel accused me of that comment of like, how do you climb so hard? <laughs> I feel the same way about you. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thank no you. No problem. That's, that's a, a, a backhanded compliment. Thank you. Well, I, it's, it's, yeah, it's the nicest thing someone anyone said about me. In the last 20 minutes, yeah. anyway. Um, but anyway, yep. I'm sorry that you're fired, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, wait, I want to back up to the algorithm thing because I've been stuck like right below 20,000 followers mm. forever. Yeah. And I, I really honestly, and because I don't like, I don't spend money boosting posts and things, I think, I think Instagram's just like, keeping me down just like trying to trying to influence me to use that word to like to spend a little money to like i mean i've been literally at like nineteen thousand two hundred and some for mm-hmm. i don't know a year or two like yeah it's weird yeah like they won't let me cross that threshold unless i i throw some money at a boosted post or whatever yeah yeah we don't need to um <laughs> disclose how many followers we have um because that's a battle that I may lose, but whatever. Yeah. I it's not like I'm checking. Um yeah, I I am the same way. I haven't had any in- increase in followers and I don't know anyone who has. I feel like we've all reached like peak saturation until you start giving them money. Like pre we've reached right. peak free, you know, we'll give you Instagram for free, but after this point, you better start like boosting some shit. It'll be a cold day in hell before I give Mark Zuckerberg a dollar. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. It's a. It's, what else is there? I feel like they should be paying us to I, use I their agree. fucking programs. I agree. But that's not what we're talking about, Chris, is it? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> well, I guess it kind of is. Yeah. Yeah, we, we thought we could talk about the um, Eddie Bauer issue. Eddie Bauer just fired all of its pro climbing athletes. For many people out there, they'll probably say, Eddie Bauer is a climbing company who <laughs> yeah, had pro Eddie, athletes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, which and, may uh, be the, which may actually be the crux of the issue. But yeah, continue. Yeah. So it was. I mean, I guess everyone 
who's of a certain age probably associates Eddie Bauer with like, you know, fishing shirts and uh, whatever. Yeah, the mall. Yeah. For me, like there was an Eddie Bauer at the mall. Right. And you went in and like, but as a, like an up and coming suburban outdoors person, I thought, you know, it's like, yeah, I got to have some Eddie Bauer pants mm-hmm. to get to go hiking in or whatever. Right. So I used to hang out in there. And the, and the the decor was outdoorsy in the shop, so yeah. I was like, "That's that's my joint." Yeah, um, but not like core, like a core Mm-mm. outdoor brand, like no. a very gen- general purpose outdoor yes. clothing um, outfitter. I guess you you could use that word. There was a lot of shops in the mall called the Outfitter, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess in around two thousand nine, they um, tried to re envision themselves as a, a North Face competitor. And, um, they kind of came up with this like line called first descent, which mm-hmm. was this micro, I don't know, subsidiary brand or part of that Eddie Bauer. And it was focused on mountaineering and climbing and stuff. I remember when that happened at the time, cause I was an editor at rock and ice and I got lots of press pitches about, you know, first descent or whatever. I think I had a first descent jacket that someone sent me and it was like nice stuff. It was like, whatever. And it was kind of speaking to this at, at the time. I, I recall it being like, "Oh, the outdoor industry is exploding! Like, there's all this new money and interest in in kind of climbing it writ large." And so, I'm not sure what is going on now, but they have basically fired all of their like true pr- climbing climber athlete people and um, are investing in this kind of sub tier of athletes who aren't really athletes but they're like just influencers like or people with like big followings yeah who, lifestyle sort of outdoors people yeah people who are good at instagram but are bad at climbing yeah it um, seems to kind of be like that but also but also you know in their defense you know there's like uh sort of community uh advocates um they're also were increasing their diversity was one of their pushes as well so so i think this kind of stirred the pot in the climbing world a little bit because of the way it happened, which is everyone unexpectedly got fired all at once on a zoom call yes. in, on Feb in February. And, um, I think that was a big shock to a lot of folks and, uh, rightly so I can, I feel my heart goes out to those people. Like, you know, we're friends with a, b- a bunch of them, like, you know, Paige Clausen and Adrian Bollinger and Katie Lambert. So, yeah, it was definitely top tier talent that yeah. they that they got in there and they and I'm sure they did it with with a good you know a good contract for these people right um over the years which was expressed by by many of them I mean we read an article by Delaney Miller quoting some of these athletes that were you know they they were upset but backpedaled to being like yeah that was a great you know it was good a great run, run. yeah yeah, yeah. I think that to the degree that we're interested in this topic at all, Chris, is, I think it's more the meta conversation mm-hmm. around the core athlete versus influencer discussion. But before we get there, I think there's just, I think it's worth saying that, um, you know, my heart goes out to to those folks and I'm of two minds of this. On the one hand, I don't really care about Eddie Bauer or pro climbers as like a general category, but I also see the other side where Eddie Bauer kind of built up its reputation as this more of a core brand than it was on these people's names and reputations and accomplishments. And, and it sucks to just like throw them out like they're pieces of garbage, Mm -hmm. you know, without any warning whatsoever and just end their contract. So, um, I, I guess that's kind of, I'm I'm of two minds of, of this news. Yeah, certainly. And you know, the way it's been depicted, it was, 
it was sort of out of the blue and it was all at once mm-hmm. um to the point where some people were even under the impression they were they were about to have like a renewal talk right um but at the same time other people were like yeah it kind of felt like the writing was on the wall in retrospect but in in the thing aside from the method and that's like corporate world like what do you do like go to everybody's house or something with like a cupcake and condolences i mean and that's kind of the other thing is like ending a contract i think with any time you've had a long time athlete is probably really prickly because because of the nature of what it is these people climb together you know it, it's their passion it's their life it's not just a job you know that you're going and sitting at a desk you know that you get fired from so i see is like there there is a little bit of these companies do get their back against the wall of how do we do this and mm-hmm. i'm not defending like this on mass sort of thing but i can imagine with athlete managers the 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 talk the sit down with any longtime athlete is probably really difficult versus like you know another drone in the accounting room or whatever um, yeah because of the passion because of the you know what what people put into those sorts of positions and i've talked to people you know that have gotten dropped and it's it's an emotional thing to have happen um anytime it happens so one of the topics that kind of came out of this that a few conversations I've had is just this kind of sense that the outdoor industry isn't really interested in doing like kind of cool shit anymore, like putting people on the proverbial moon, you know, like sending them off on like rad expeditions. And it's kind of just been, maybe it has to do with the pandemic and travel restrictions and stuff, but it felt it, it, the, um, the sense among kind of people within the industry and within the professional climbing world is that companies aren't, don't care about that at all anymore. Um, what do you think of, of that, Chris? I mean, this all started with like Eddie Bauer has athletes. And so I, I, it's not like, I don't know that it's, it's necessarily this harbinger. There's, there's companies that have differentiated themselves. I think outdoor research has also gone pretty heavily this direction, although I, they still support athletes. And so it's it's kind of a brand by brand thing, but I I feel like the core brands, you know, it's funny because we were talking about how North Face is probably the the brand that Eddie Bauer was, you know, trying to emulate or com- compete with mm-hmm. when they did this. And North Face also in our in climbing sort of represents this you know behemoth like you know corporate thing, and yet if anybody's still doing the the full athlete support and sending them on expeditions and underwriting expeditions to Antarctica to, you know, whatever the moon is anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, now that, you know, 8,000 meter peaks were kind of the original moon. And interestingly, Eddie Bauer was actually involved in that in the 60s before they became this kind of household sort of mall brand. Yeah. Nevertheless, like everybody busts on the North Face in a way, but they are like the gold standard of supporting an athlete team. Yeah, yeah. And, um... Yeah, and so it's funny because it's like the the, the climbing companies kind of can't win in a way. I feel like you know, yeah, BD's athlete team is strong, and um, you know, there's companies out there who don't even have hardly any money, and they still have a few athletes, so to speak. Um, it's seen as like something you kind of still have to do within the core brands. Yeah, it's it's kind of like we're bemoaning the loss of, of, you know, professional climbing is this uh, on some level, you know, there's, Mm. there is a bit of that, 
but um, it's also the thing that we like shit talk the most. <laughs> totally, that's the thing, yeah. right? <laughs> Ask any pro athlete. You know, they get as nearly as much shit as props. Like, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of funny in that way. But um, I mean, if there was a choice between two worlds where it was like this super funded, supported professional athlete thing that was, you know, these were like real teams that were, you know, had real money and support to do really cool stuff versus the what where Eddie Bauer seems to be taking it, which is all, you know, um, um, like a game of, of numbers on social media. Where would you I mean, where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, I mean, personally, I fall where I've always fallen, which is, yeah, I want I want these athletes to get supported so they can climb all the time so they can do the hardest shit. Yeah. And, you know, I you can talk about that across all niche sports. Mm-hmm. Like, it's necessary because, you know, it's like writing a novel while you have a day job. Like, it's really hard to do. Being the best climber in the world and having a day job would be really, really hard to do. Right. And... You know, the other thing that's interesting, though, is that, or to me, um, you know, I want to mention this, I've mentioned this before on the show, but, you know, Yvonne Chouinard has been notorious in the industry for basically wondering why we have to have supported athletes, like why we sponsor athletes. Like, I, from being, I mean, from the last 30 years, there's always been this tension within Black Diamond when an herb Chenard equipment and then Patagonia that he's like, why are we doing this? Right. Like, so the question of why, of what athletes bring to the table, I think has always been an interesting one. And I think that this discussion or this, whatever's happening with the influencer thing from a business standpoint, from an exposure standpoint, from selling gear, because that's really what these companies want to do mm-hmm. clothing for the most part. Now it's like, you got to wonder like it's maybe the right decision you know yeah because the problem with with athletes is that they're preaching to the choir mm-hmm. and so you know if you want to expand the people who are buying your gear outside of climbing i don't think a a you know a an athlete a hardcore climbing athlete is going to do that for you right you know yeah it's really funny to think about like what <laughs> I mean, what what do they do? What is? I mean, that's really like we could spend like the next three hours. Like, what the fuck do? Other than like, I like to see what they climb. Do right. I? You do know, you care? Does do it I influence care? you? Does it influence me to yeah. buy their shit? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but and then are we normal? Yeah, we're, we're, not we're like too deep. We're too deep inside. Yeah, but I feel like that's so many climbers are too deep because that's kind of what it means to be a climber, right? right. Like you're so geeked right. out on this on the whole thing. And so yeah, it is weird. Like not I mean, the best climber in the world isn't always the best ambassador for mm. or the best business person. That's also been a there's a history of that in yeah. climbing, yeah. And um and sometimes the best ambassador, you know, someone who really is like influential and you want you like, you know, isn't just like a vapid, superficial you know, person who's good at Instagram reels can be really powerful, you know, person who can carry your message, but might not be the hardest climber in the world. So there's no formula, you know, there's no cookie cutter mold that like, this is exactly, I don't know, everyone's different, right? Yeah. And uh, people have different strengths. So it, I think it's, if there is a one thing to criticize Eddie Bauer about, it's not seeing that and just going full, putting all their eggs into one basket with like cold, 
marketing numbers. So right. you know, this is just what we want. We just want the person who's like doing the most advertising for us on social media. And if that bugs you, then you should do what I what I just recently recommended on our TAPS episode over at the Enormic Cast, which is not follow these people. Right. Clear out your social media feed and stop fucking paying attention to these you know, people who have nothing to say and are just like, you know, buckets, empty buckets that marketing brands fill with their messages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was just thinking how like I've spent the last 10 years like praising this trend within climbing and within, you know, sponsored athletes, pro climbers that, you know, the industry did move away from just, you know, how hard do you climb? Okay. You're sponsored and you don't, you don't climb hard, you don't get sponsored. And mm-hmm. that that was, you know, pretty close to the way it was. Mm-hmm. And I've been praising the fact that other people have these opportunities, you know, and, you know, companies are sponsoring Drew Halsey, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, or people who have an interesting message, they climb, they're legit, but they also have these other things going on. And, and one of the things Eddie Bauer did was, yeah, again, to these sort of c- community organizer type people mm-hmm. um, that are doing work, you know, in, in various outdoor communities. That's been a trend in climbing as well. Mm-hmm. And so I've, it's funny because I'm, I've been praising that, but then this sort of is the, you know, it is kind of the extension of that, mm-hmm. of like, let's not just reward these numbers on a piece of paper that you climb, right. which are esoteric and weird outside of climbing anyway. Right. Let's reward these other skills. And I think if we talk to one of these influencers, although according to, to the article with, with Delaney, like none of them responded to being talked to, right. you know, they would say, Oh, I deserve this too. I, I'm yeah. good at what I do. And yeah. So what you and your crimps and your slopers, like I don't fucking care. And, and they have a point. Like, <laughs> Who cares? This person is doing exciting work and they're maybe selling jackets to people that would never look at climbing. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. And that's that's kind of why I'm like, with Eddie Bauer, like, did it make sense for them to have this super technical team of athletes? Yeah. It maybe didn't. And at some point, the, the new guy, it sounds like, was like, yeah, it doesn't. So how do we, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it it just, if that's the case, then it's just like the last 10 years have been a failure for them in, in terms of trying to make inroads into this corner of the outdoor market. Right. Um, and so they should, and I think we should be called out on, on failing so bad, spectacularly. Right. I mean, as core climbers, and that's who we mostly talk to on here Yeah, and we are like, we can all kind of agree that it wasn't particularly effective. Right. I mean, I don't know anybody who's going to the mat for for their Eddie Bauer stuff out there. I feel like Adidas is going to be next. Please, like they're like the they're they're sort of <laughs> they were of that same era of mm-hmm. like oh we're going to get into climbing right. and and look at what they've done for the industry since they've entered the market. They've made five ten way worse. Um, and they, I mean, I don't know a single person who's bought an actual like Adidas climbing related piece of outerwear you know like can you think of a single person i mean like, i i don't know like you kind of know it when you see it because it's like it stands out because it's it stands out sure but has all, everyone who's it. wearing them it, right. it seems like they've gotten it for free that's true yeah, yeah good point so i mean I this, this is a very this, this is a very unofficial poll that we're doing right here no, in my yeah, basement this is all but, subjective yeah <laughs> but I, again like 
a dedication to like Metolius, for example, mm-hmm. who's like a kind of you know can't really even hold a candle to the the deep pockets of an Eddie Bauer or North Face or whatever. Like the dedication to them becomes passionate where you people fight about it mm-hmm. online or whatever like right and yeah do do we see that kind of thing about some of these other brands i don't think so yeah you know because we love the little guy in, in climbing so yeah exactly dmm yeah the dmm people f- yeah um yeah it's they're few and far between though and um but it's just gonna i think it is a moment to just reflect on this kind of like mar- big big dollar marketing push to like make climbing grow and be have athlete teams and have like an Everest line of like 8,000 meter suits that, you know, you sell three of. Right. And, um, it seems like it's kind of crumbling a little bit. Well, that's the thing too, is the whole Eddie Bauer thing is always, it's, it's been this weird paradox in my head where they have these incredible athletes, Katie Lambert, you know, but even with her involved or, or Mason or whatever, I was like, no, this, that's, they're selling to the Everest crowd. Like that's mm-hmm. their market. Part of their thing was like, it's guides mm-hmm. and, a, and a bunch of their athletes were guides. And um, yeah, Carolyn George was in there and like that, like to, to me, like that's who fit, you know, she's right. out there. She's got clients. She's got high dollar clients. Yeah. That makes sense to yeah. me. You know, like that's, was a great person to have probably in your gear. Yeah. And and so yeah, I mean it's still just as like I, I don't I've never really quite understood the calculation, even with the purest of sponsored athletes. Like what's the calculation? And it's and it's an amorphous kind of thing that you can't quantify. And part of the push and we, we felt it here at the runout with our original sponsors was that you can quantify mm-hmm. this shit. Mm-hmm. And Luckily, not every company just sits there and quantifies or else the Normacast and, and maybe someday the runout wouldn't get a sponsor because we can't we can't show a direct line here to an ear to the store to the online purchase. Yeah, cold calculus on on advertise like how to do your advertising dollars pay off. And I think with with these digital online sources, not just the amount of followers is quantifiable, but it's much easier to set up an actual system to see that, you know, Joey so-and-so that does these hiking videos, like, oh, here it is. We see it. it the people looked at that, clicked on that, bought this. Like, mm-hmm. boom, Joey, good job, mm-hmm. you know? And for marketing people, like, you know, that's it's probably very tempting to be able to bring that to the table of, like, here's what that happened. With sponsoring a climber, like... Maybe it influenced somebody when they were in the store because two weeks ago they saw the video and it's like so hard. But that's always been advertising up until the digital age. That's all advertising ever was. Right. You know? What do you think climbing would look like without, like if there were no professional athletes, there were no sponsorships, like, and people just really had to be part of this. I mean, like the the top tier climbers had to self-fund everything and, you know, work at waiting tables at Applebee's or whatever. To- <laughs> God, that's like such a hard question because my entire 33 years of climbing, we've had some level of those people. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, in the beginning, it was those guys. And right. that's also changed, which, you know, again, is a good thing of the last of the last years. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely a hard thing to imagine because, I mean, it's always, for me, it's always been there. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to see how that would be a an improvement to um, on some level. You mm-hmm. know, I, I I do. I mean, like the 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 you know eighteen year old kid who first fell in love with climbing wants there to be like professional athletes who are doing rad shit that inspires me, and I want to see the videos and read the articles and see the photos and hear the stories about people who are really at the cutting edge and like that'll never not be interesting and important to me. And so what, if that model is needs to come from companies that pay them to do that, uh, then that's always been fine with me. So I don't yeah, know. I mean, it's interesting too, though, because then you would have to do this like alternate u- alternate universe and to, to decide what a sense may never have happened. Because I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there was a pushback early on in sort of, you know, Himalayan climbing against sponsorship, but it was, it was in the, it was in the dark ages. Right. I mean, even by the late seventies, when we're talking about all the, you know, the infamous British years with the Bonington crew and, you know, the, the, the just hardcore NAR that was all sponsored by somebody. And mm-hmm. a lot of, t- I mean, it wasn't necessarily climbing companies. It was like cigarette companies and Rolex and, but, would those people have gone and does done those things on their own dollar? And then you have to think about like 40 years of that, like what's not been climbed yet if it's all been funded out of pocket. The, and, and one other thing I'll say with that that's I think important is that there was, with that, there was something of taking at least mountaineering away from the, the aristocrats, which it had been. Right. I mean, in the in the history of Himalayan climbing was aristocratic, right? And if you go back to the Alps in the eighteen hundreds, you know it was it was rich of the richest of the rich were sort of playgrounding in the Alps, and it and in fact it was the working class British climbers of the seventies, you know, um, the Doug Scotts and all those people that rested that, and but they only did it because they were being funded right. to a certain extent. That's interesting. Know? So you, it's like becomes this kind of economic thing where you're like well how did that all happen well yeah i guess it would be the trust funders would be the only good climbers the other thing sponsorship did was it took it out of the hands of state funding where there was you know these these state funded federations that were climbing for the glory of the of the mother country you know right french with annapurna and all these things and yeah those were also the ways in which you funded something and but that again was drawing from the aristocracy like it was uh, Mallory and Irvine were both kind of dirtbags, and a and a couple other people on that expedition, some of those first expeditions to Everest. But they had to fight tooth and nail, and these British mountaineering councils basically were like, you know, who are these? They're they're not earls. They're not like these mm-hmm. people don't get to go. Right. And some of the better climbers who were, you know, of the aristocracy had to put their foot down and go, no, no, these guys are the best climbers. We need them because of the best climbers. Right. But the pushback against their social class was really, was really interesting, mm. you know? So, I mean, we've gone off on this whole tangent, but like sponsorship has not always been evil, so to speak. You yeah, know? No, no, I think you're making a really good point. Um, but yeah. Oh, and then I guess the other question I have for you is what do you think this pretends for the other companies like the black diamonds of the world? And maybe it's not helpful to invoke a specific name of a company, but just in general, my sponsor. Yeah. Your sponsor. I mean, you know what I'm saying though? Mm -hmm. Like the more core brands that do still fund, um, or sponsor, you know, really good, the, the cut, the cream of the crop, the Mm -hmm. the best climbers in the world. 
Um, do you th- see them being like looking at Eddie Bauer and being influenced and being like, hmm, maybe we should ditch all of these like dudes and, and go with the the people dancing on Instagram and TikTok? Man, I don't know. I think I think there probably is a bit of soul searching in the same way we're doing it of like, well, what what is our direct you know, ROI or return on investment with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I almost feel like it'll be something that's been happening anyway. And, and it's probably like the bane of, you know, the true hardcore climber sponsor person's existence is, is like, okay, we, we, we're going to keep this team. We're going to keep sending you guys, but more fucking TikToks, more reels. <laughs> I mean, we want to see your social media presence heightened. Right. And I mean, and that's been happening for ten years. We we know because we talk to some of these people on the inside, and they're just like, "Oh my god, it's all it's like takes all my time to be like this constant online presence." Yeah, and it's burning people out. That, but I think a, a, a North Face or a BD or someone like that are probably weighing those two things when they're talking to an athlete. Like, yes, we want you to climb for us because you're really a great climber, but you know. We have a lot of great climbers out there. We also like you because you are this really excellent online presence. Right. So it'll just be a, I think it'll be like a more important part of a resume Yeah. that a climber has to think about if they're going to pursue that path. But at the same time, I mean, like BD's, you know, they picked up Connor Herson and I don't think that guy's got much of a, I mean, mm-hmm. for considering his age that he's like in it, you know, Gen Z or whatever, I don't even know. Is there somebody? Somebody who's nineteen? Is that a whole nother? Yeah, he's thing? Gen Z. Yeah, like probably tail end of Gen Z. Yeah, he, you know, he should be like gold. But yeah. I mean, he's a full time student and shit. He's not. He's not got time for, yeah, to be not, dancing he's not on TikTok. Yeah, he's not gonna. T- <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just you know, I'm giving props out to that. Like right. they're still because that's the other thing is that I think some of these athlete teams and I think Conrad's been really good about this too. Is they they are plucking talent and at least giving some level of developmental, you know, it's like a, a minor league baseball thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're still doing that, and that, well, that speaks was a little of, bit to like the the that they're still they still have faith in this system. Yeah, you know. Well, that was one of the the least uh, flattering things about that in that article about Eddie Bauer um, that Delaney wrote was that information about Katie Lambert kind of presenting ideas to the team for up and coming climbers to support, but they didn't have enough followers. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted someone with 20,000 followers and these people had 15,000 or something like yeah. that. But to um, say these other companies aren't doing the follower calculation as at least part of the equation, yeah, of I think is probably naive too. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that all of that should just be taken with like a very small grain of salt. And so if any, you know, decision makers at marketing in the marketing department at these, some of these companies is listening to this. I think that that should be like a 10% of your calculation in terms of who this person is and whether they're valuable for your brand to invest in as opposed to like 90%, you know? Um, so hopefully that that's my, uh, my two cents on this. Yeah, I don't know about ten percent. I feel like we gotta, right. gotta, we gotta give them twenty five percent, some, some, some like level of like it's still a business. <laughs> right. This isn't charity, you know. But but the thing I'll say with that is that like you know uh, a black diamond 
um, in a North Face who have Alex Honnold, like he's been on their teams for years. Mm-hmm. And in that case, like it's pay paid it's pay dirt for them. Yeah. Like he was not Alex Honnold that free soloed the, the El Cap or got an Oscar when they picked him up a decade ago. Right. And I know they've had to court him continually, but he also is is very practical about like, I like this gear, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna use it maybe regardless. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, so here's one. Here's an example of like he was just this doe-eyed like freakazoid who was like bold, no no social media, and now mm-hmm. he's he's like this guy they've got, you know. And so it's like there is some calculus, or there can be a, of taking a chance on somebody or trying to see a spark in something before it blossoms, just like a NBA team would, would or a baseball team or anybody else, you know. So if you want to be a pro climber, you either need to free solo El Cap or shake that booty, shake that booty on TikTok and pay Zuckerberg money to boost your follower account above 20,000. You decide which is good for you. <laughs> I take free solo in El Cap before paying Mark Zuckerberg anything. Jesus. You just, you just, un- you just finally unleash that wave of. El Cap free solo attempts that we were told was going to happen after the after the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's finally time, people. Line it up. Micah Burhart is a professional climber, author, and mother of twins. Her new book is More, Life on the Edge of Adventure and Motherhood. So we can start if we'd like to. Are we good? Let's do it. Before you turn into a puking pumpkin. Um, <laughs> this will make sense later in the interview, but disclose that uh, Micah is on her way to being sick. She's got sick kids in the house. And um, as we talk about the book, this will it'll be revealed as to why that's kind of interesting as far as this interview is concerned. But you've written this book more it's something of a, an epistolary memoir in the modern version of that. Um, instead of letters crafted in an English manner in the 1800s, it's uh, various forms of, of journaling that came out while you were pregnant and leading up to having twins and raising twins for the last few years. Voice memos, uh, I think some stuff written down, some stuff typed, all these sorts of th- th- things. Um, th- the question I have is sort of, when in this process, because it seems as though you started the process of taking all these notes as something that you just do, um, and you started a process of writing letters to your children for their future, hopefully, consumption. When did it occur to you that you might have something bigger um, out of all this stuff that was on bones, I assume, and computers and hard drives and things like that. All over the place. Yeah. You know, in all honesty, I was working on another writing project. So every time I would sit down to write for that project, this would come out. So I wrote more by accident. And it's like I had to get this stuff out on paper to clear the way to work on the other project, which still hasn't manifested (laughs) because this became the more immediate and emergent thing to write about. So it was about th- when my kids were three that I sat down and I transcribed the audio journals and I put them together and I said, what, I think there might be a there there. And I was like, I don't think this is kind of 
first, I don't know, what's the expression in writing, like um, sources that I'm going to go back to and recraft. This is actually the book, right? Like I don't act, I don't want to use these as a reference point. I want this to be the story that I'm telling. But it took me, you know, I mean, I had, I was three and a half years into this process before I thought it was going to be a book itself. There is um, a lot of conversation around uh, parenthood and being a climber, trying to be a climber in parenthood. Um, we've had uh, numerous discussions about that on the show. I just watched this film, actually, that came. It's not out yet, but um, it's a, a little lovely profile that Tara Kersner created about um, Paige Clausen, her struggles with pregnancy and, and um, miscarriage and so forth. Yeah, so I just feel like this is a, a, an interesting conversation point in uh in, our, in the culture right now and what's interesting in some sense is that there is this idea that motherhood or just you know parenthood is is sort of new as a climber like it's it's like we're discovering these things obviously people have been getting pregnant and having kids for as long as people have been around but it, it's almost as if climbers <laughs> are discovering um this as if the, it's uh something original that we've that we've come across and um and so there's I, I find it kind of just unique and interesting to approach these topics as if um as if we're the first ones ever to talk about it but it, it, it's done through this lens of of trying to be a you know an adventurer climber I mean, you could argue, yeah, it's not new, right? People have been climbing and those climbing have been parent, climbers have been parents, but there is a shift that's happening in part because there are more women in this ecosystem. I mean, there just are, right? I mean, when I think back to when I started climbing in the nineties and I thought about like my, the people, the women that I looked up to, you know, who I'm now super lucky that I get to have as friends that, you know, you can sort of count on your hand and say, these are the climbers that stuck with it and are still climbing as their moms. And now that's not the case. So I think there's a bit of a groundswell and it's bringing the dialogue forward. And I think with that also brings lots of examples of parenting with climbing, which I think is only good because whenever we have kind of a didactic format for anything, right? Where it's like, this is how you handle risk and parenthood. And it's like, no, it's so nuanced. There's so many different ways to interpret this because there's lots of different ways to parent and there's lots of different kids. I think that's like the other piece of the puzzle that sometimes we don't talk about. So I, I appreciate the irony of it. You know, we talk about it like it's new. I think that there is something afoot that's really different. It's really cool for me to be a mom who has been a climber and a serious climber for so much of my life and look around and see so many other women who are my peers who are doing the same thing. And, you know, that wasn't the case for women 15 years ago. Yeah, I think it goes back further, um, too. I mean, we had um, Lauren Delaney Miller on here with her um, Valley of Giants book, you know, kind of depicting women in climbing um historically and she mentioned the fact that that you know there seems to have been this upsurge in women climbers or at least women climbing on their own and doing first ascents um right around the time that you know birth control became widely available and um women started putting families off t until later and so there's that and then we're still you know even nowadays we're still dealing with this narrative in climbing of moms shouldn't climb you know and oh yeah um Allison Hargreaves is, you know, one I always think about when when she um, was killed. That was the first thing. How how how? Why was she climbing with children? And you know, and and it it just recently came up again when we were we were talking to um, Libby Sauter. You know, this idea that yeah, you shouldn't be in this sphere. I think is still still around. So yeah, maybe that's why it's almost like there's a there's a critical mass of pushback against that narrative right now. Um, 
among women like yourself um, who who are trying to do continue to be uh, in that sphere and and have kids at the same time. I've thought a lot about this recently in terms of again, it's just not that simple. The same thing for men, right? But you don't have that crescendo of questions like, well, is that person a dad? And how old are their kids? It doesn't come as fast. But for women doing you know, bigger climbs, it certainly is automatic in people's heads. And I feel like until we start storytelling about all the different ways to be a parent and a climber, we're going to keep trying to have these fixed visions of it. And that ultimately is just really limiting because, and it's also limiting because you can change when I mean, we all know this as parents, you can change what risk feels like in a day, in a year, in a season, because you find out that something's going on with your kid and suddenly it feels way riskier to be out of phone service, but you can like do really dodgy climbing. Like when you have cell phone service, and think it's reasonable, right? So there's, it's just so much more nuanced than I definitely think than the popular media gives it. And I think the climbing media allows that nuance to be there, but yet we're still sort of trapped in wanting to have a black and white definition of it. And I think the way that that changes is by having a larger conversation and showing a myriad of options. So why don't you just uh, give us the summary of your book? What is kind of tell us the high, you know, the gloss on what it what it's really about and um, how it fits into these questions that we're getting into. Right yeah. Now. So as Chris mentioned, more is an epistolary memoir. It's a series of letters I wrote to my twins from the moment I found out I was pregnant. Um, at that point, thinking it was one child. Uh, it was a total surprise to have twins all the way through to them being four and a half. And it's really the story of me trying to learn how to become a mom and my version of motherhood, which was balancing being a climber, running Legato, this giant international organization that I was growing while I was growing them, trying to keep my marriage intact. And trying along the way to learn about things that happened in my childhood that I wanted to bring forward into my kids' childhood and things that I needed to leave behind. Well, it's funny that you say balance, you use the word balance, because it's largely about that uh, being a bit unbalanced, I think. And, um, you know, you were just talking about how you, uh, everybody has these visions of what, you know, being a mom and being a climber or a parent rather and being a climber is going to look like in. The funny thing is, is that you did too. And, uh, you know, I think part of the, I don't know, it's not even comedy. It's like me just shaking my head was because, you know, I also have a kid now. And so I'm on the other side of that young time. Um, yeah, that you were so wrong about it. You were oh, just like so, so wrong. wrong about it. And you were but like, that's how we but, but I will, ourselves. but I will, I will do this anyway, even though like every indicator every pile of puke in my lap everything is telling me i'm wrong right now but i'm i mean there's a bullheadedness uh no offense to the way you went forward with some of that stuff until it all kind of broke i think yeah i think absolutely and no i mean that's the thing about this book is you know because it isn't in a retrospective where you're sort of blurring the edges and you're saying oh well that wasn't that hard like this is there is no way around like it's my honest accounting of just like it being a hot mess a lot of the time, right? And being, as you're saying, like really bullheaded and really determined and then watching things fly apart and saying, oh crap, how do I take it? What's a giant take two on this going to look like? And I think that 
I was thinking about the other day, I was talking to a young adventure climber skier who is thinking about becoming a parent. And I was just, it was, I was starting to think about it like a board game, right? Like before we're parents, we, we envision these little figurines and we move them around on some, some hypothetical board game and it all looks really tidy. And like you move them over to their grandparents when you think that you might want to go on a trip or, you know, and then you actually have these kids and you have actual grandparents and you're like, oh, that's not going to work. Right. Like, or this is, you know, it just, the reality is so much different than plastic figurines moving around. And that it's probably good because that's why we take the leap into parenthood. If we really truly understood what it was going to be, we might not be as willing to take that leap. I, and for me, um, yeah, I had to push myself off a cliff in some ways to go even try to become a parent. And the universe gave me twins and said, yeah, get ready. Here you go. So when did you find out um, that you had twins? What was the, was it a later, you made it sound like it was later than you might otherwise expect? It was, well, it was early, relatively speaking, but it was, you know, out of the blue. So it wasn't on our radar. It wasn't like, oh, we're doing IVF and therefore we should be ready for this. Right. right. Um, so I only I asked was because only... my, um, my, I only asked because my wife, uh, her mom had twins, uh, her brother, my wife's brothers are, are twins and she didn't find out that she was having twins until eight months or something like that. Like it was really late because the technology was so bad back in the day, but I just can't imagine. I just can't Or at birth time, right? Be like, wait a second, something's going on. The afterbirth isn't coming. coming (laughs) Holy cow. Yeah. No, I found out at seven weeks. So super early. And I found out in part because I was realizing that I was pregnant. I had a trip to Patagonia coming up and I was like, I can't go climbing in Patagonia if I'm pregnant. And then I started thinking like, what if I'm not really pregnant? Um, and I had had a friend of mine who had had a molar pregnancy. And so all systems thought that she was pregnant and, but she actually wasn't. And I all, while understanding that that's very rare, was sort of obsessed with it. And it's like, no, I really need to know that I'm pregnant. It can't just be peeing on a stick. I need to know I'm pregnant. My doctor's like, okay, come on in and we'll do an ultrasound. And they're doing the ultrasound and she's all of a sudden paused. And she looked at me and she said, have you been doing anything special? And I was like, what, you know, are there twins in there? Are you joking? And she said, I I don't joke about this kind of stuff. And it was like, holy cow, they're two babies. So pretty early on. (laughs) Yeah. Chris and I have a a mutual friend here in Colorado who, um, had twins. And when she discovered that she was pregnant with twins, uh, proceeded to scream the word fuck at the top of her lungs into the, into a doctor's office, which is even more hilarious. If you know what a sweet and reserved uh, person she normally is. Oh, um, it's not, I mean, I grabbed Peter's hand and I, cause it was just like the overwhelming, I mean, I was bawling and I was just like, only the good things. Like I, we have to do only the good things right now, you know? Um, cause I just, I, like I had to like stave off just this crescendo of, Oh my God, what does this mean? Cause that yeah. perfect little existence that I had planned, Chris <laughs> suddenly became really not, not, not that possible. You know, the, the other thing I think about climbers, and, and again, we had Libby Sauter on here who talked about, um, you know, the issues of late in life pregnancies. Um, yours was as well, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of, you know, fortunate term of geriatric pre- pregnancies. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's super common in climbing because people, women want to get their stuff done or they want to, or they, they kind of like put it off and put it off and put it off because they have the next trip and the next trip. And you have to, like you said, push yourself off this proverbial cliff to, to make it happen. But it's funny because I think about how like we remove ourselves so far from this kind of mainstream idea of like, you get out of school and you get a job and then you have a family. And like, so we're like, not only are we not trained, um, we've, you know, we've, we've like purposely put blinders on to what raising kids and families life 
life is like. And I think that's why I, I feel like that's why so many climbers end up surprised by what it's really like, like surprised by the good things too. I mean, you know, surprised by how much it just, you know, and, and you talk a lot about this in the book, just how much it fills you and fills these places that you thought only, you know, the wild places and climbing could fill. And um, I think that surprises us just as much. I know I was surprised, you know, just how, what it felt like to have this kid in your hand, you know, which maybe doesn't surprise people for whom grew up in this sort of, again, family mold or on the way to having families. Um, again, just to comment on the, the bizarre kind of way climbers, I think, tend to view this sort of thing. Well, cause you have to, climbing is such a, it takes so much time, right? Like I, someone I'm sure has done a study of like, okay, you want to be a hardcore climber versus these other sports. And like, let's do a grab. I mean, climbing just takes so much flipping time. So in order to keep making that choice, you have to choose it over other things. So it's exactly what you're saying, Chris, you're like, okay, sure. I could go be with my sister and go do this whole thing with all of her kids. But I have this, I have this other agenda, right? You just have this other agenda, whether or not you cop to it or not. If you're in it to win it as a climber, you have another agenda and you always have it. And most people around, you can feel it, right? You're like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't have time for this unless, and if you're a climber, who's also working, right? So if you're like, I have a job, which may or may not intersect climbing. And I'm trying to climb all the time. Like there's just, there's, there's no margin in there. Um, and then you justify it. And then suddenly you put kids in there and you're like, oh, now I'm going to be a climber and I'm going to have a job. And I'm going to try to be like, not just a checkoff parent, but I'm going to try to dive in as a parent. How the heck am I going to balance this? Because I haven't been balancing that kind of a, like that triad before. One thing that I've discovered as a parent is just so much of the dissatisfaction to the degree that that exists and as being a parent is born of the chasm between expectation and reality. And I don't know where those expectations come from necessarily, but I noticed that early on where I would have, um, you know, my daughter for the, for the day or whatever. And I would think that nap time would coincide with being able to like session on the moon board or something. And when that didn't work out, um, then I was really upset about that. And so I, I, I kind of begrudgingly had to learn that um, I can't expect to, you know, get in my little training workout, you know, when I'm with this little baby. And once I removed those expectations, I was much, you know, happier with with life as, you know, trying to balance, <laughs> you know, trying to balance all these things. And you just gave up is what you're trying to say. Well, once I didn't give up. up. I still, Everything I, was I, fine. I, I, no, I'm, I'm you know, Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Certainly a lot of people would look at, at my life and my current state of fitness and the uh, the, the uh, bags under my eyes and say I've given up. But um, you see what I'm getting at? Like, so there's the, that sense of expectation. I, I don't know where it comes from. And I think it is, I've noticed also that women have a degree a, and a level of expectations that's far different in the quality of it and in the nature of it. And also just more expectations, I think of what they can do and achieve as mothers. Um, it's certainly true with, with my wife and, you know, your book to the, you know, to the degree that it could answer that question, it, it paints, you know, like paints an honest picture of what, what life is actually like, particularly with twins. And so perhaps that is useful in a sense of just, you know, correcting where expectations lie, but, yeah, these conversations are just great to have because of that expectation setting. But I, but I, I think that we still will inevitably set and have those expectations for ourselves, you know, as we embark on parent. So maybe t tell us like where, where were your expectations calibrated and how, 
how did that um, chasm manifest with your with your twins? I love that you've been able to let go of that. I, I feel like that sounds like a great goal, but I, prob- I probably have like an expectation crash on a daily level still in my life. I'm like, this is what's going to happen. Oh, this is what happened, right? But I can weather it better um, as I go along. And I think that for me, as we talked about already, that expectation that like having a kid was just going to fit into my life. Even though if I had said that in the moment, I'm like, I don't really believe that. I know that this is variable and I've seen people have kids, but I'm like, but I can probably pull it off. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's like kind of like the secret I did. It's like, but you know, I probably have, yeah, the, we, I think we the, all, we all feel that. Right. We, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we're probably That's the well one put. to nail this. <laughs> and, um, and then as it went on for me, what was recalibrated you know, and I talk about it. it's funny, Chris, that you called out that I, I mentioned. I have my little boy who came in. I'll be there in a little bit, Cass. Um, that you call is balance has been something I've been tr- like seeking my whole life. I'm a Libra, right? So, and I don't really believe in astrology, but as I was keeping like, ooh, the signs, and either like you know you're balanced on the inside but, or on the outside, but not on the inside, and all this you know mythology that went with it. And for me, eventually, as a mom, I had to realize that balance was something that I had to let go of. I had to just be more, like you were saying, Andrew, present in the moment, but also see these micro wins as a way to recalibrate my expectations, right? It's like, oh, I just did a really good job. Like today I came up with a whole new Lego project that I was doing before I was talking to you all, right? Because it's vacation week in New Hampshire. And like taking those moments to have satisfaction, I feel like has really helped me recalibrate myself and also say, hey, like, and it's the same thing with climbing, right? Like I, I get a lot of joy in short climbing days right now. And in fact, like to the point where I'm almost obsessed with them. I don't love long climbing days. I'm like, I could be doing so many other things today, right? Or I could get more climbing days if I climb three days a week, you know, for shorter amounts of times. And I've just found this way to make all the pieces work. But I also had to change how I had a, my relationship to each of those pieces in order to keep pulling them off. Yeah, it's funny while I was reading the book, you know, you're, an ice climber and an alpinist and all this stuff. And I was like, gosh, you should just move to the Western slope where you can sport climb all the time and like be done with it. You know, (laughs) that's right. I tell you, you have to move here to ice climb. No way. (laughs) Forget it. Yeah. It's nice, big bomber stainless steel bolts. That's, 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 that's good parenting life. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, this is always an issue. I think when we talk about memoirs, especially ones, you know, you know, written, in the ongoing moment, not like late in your life where you're talking about relationships you had 30 years ago or, or, you know, whatever comes up in a, in sort of a final memoir type setup. Um, and this one is warts and all, as you, as you mentioned, it, it's taken from stuff you wrote in the moment, whatever, you know, small editing you did to, to clean up the words, you left the feelings there. Um, and so it's warts and all, and, and including your relationship with your husband and, and your relationship with your mom. So how did that sort of, um, this is a common question for uh, someone writing a memoir, but how did that feel to put that into the world, the harshness of it at times, the the emotional parts of it, maybe not expecting someone um, to be so forthcoming as you are, um, so to speak. It wasn't necessarily their choice, or maybe you did give them the choice in the end. It's really tricky, Close. It's, for me... I really needed to tell this story and they couldn't be not part of this story. Like they're just integral to it. And I, you know, had conversations with both of them and ongoing have those conversations. And I think that for me, what's important is that it's done with love. And I think like what I really land on is 
that as you were saying, like it's warts and all, it's the experience. And sometimes I think about parenthood and I think about like early parenthood as so profoundly lonely, which is weird, right? Because if you are partnered, you actually have a partner who's probably doing everything they can to like make it work. But yet you're like these parallel people who aren't really communicating whatsoever and aren't necessarily meeting each other's needs. And so it becomes like you're doing something together, but you're doing it separately and it's creating this loneliness. And I think really talking about that has a lot of value because I think that so much like early childhood is so hard on marriages, right? It's like every statistic out there talks about it and you get it when you're in the middle of it. You're like, oh yeah, this is when things start to unravel, but how do I not have it unravel? Right? How, and I don't have it not unraveling by not, by pretending that's not hard. I think the way you do it is by owning the fact that that hardness is there and working your ass off to get to the other side. And I think that too often we're in the past about it, right? We're we're like, you know, it's like someone being like, oh yeah, it was really tricky when I had little kids, but just like buck up and have a date night. It'll all go great. And you're just like, what the fuck? Like, that's not enough. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, versus saying, saying, yeah, like, let's talk about it, right? Like he, and so that's to me, what the value of putting this book in the world is, is having that more honest conversation. And ultimately, yeah, I mean, I mean, I've known you, Chris, for absurd amount of time and I've always written like this. And I feel like that's something that my mom has known. It's never been her first choice, but it's something that she gets and she's been really welcoming. And, you know, it's what I say in the afterward that, you know, the reality is that Peter was right there every step of the, the way and he was working his butt off and I didn't totally see it. Like, that's not what this book is about. This book is about like how it felt in the moment and being scared to death of how it felt and trying to fix it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's such, you know, there's such this hallmarky kind of media around, you know, having kids and being this couple. And like, you know, I even think of those gauzy photos that people get done at a studio, you know, with the kid holding them and you know, everything looks perfect. And, and it's, it's so funny because when you have a kid, you're just like, that's such bullshit. It's all bullshit. But then part of you is like, wait, maybe it's not. And I'm the one that's sucking at this. And those people really do have it all like under control, you know? So it's, I mean, I, when I was thinking about like, who's this book for, um, and you know, its purpose and everything else, as much in my mind, that was it. It's like, I didn't, I mean, again, I wasn't, sort of, you know, paying attention for the first 45 years of my life to having children. But, you know, there's been a recent, you know, I'd say decade uh, talk about, um, you know, postpartum depression and things like that. And, you know, I had, had never heard that before. I'd never heard this idea that, that women can have a child and then just slip into this horrible hormonal depression. That's like, you know, can result in some really horrible things. And, so there is this conversation out there, but it's still overlaid by this hallmarky kind of thing that's out there. And, and you don't have to be a parent long to realize like they're lying to you. They're, yeah. The hallmark people are lying, like lying through their teeth to you about how perfect it's all going to be, you know? Well, it's it's a little more complicated than that because even if they're not lying to you, it doesn't, they are, it doesn't right. matter because you have the kids that you have and they're is precisely as difficult as they're going to be. And you're doing precisely the only job that you as a parent can do. And so <laughs> to the degree that everyone else who has kids is like living life better and doing more and, and is more productive and has a better career in their marriage, isn't suffering any of the normal consequences of having, you know, small children, 
it does not matter for your situation. And, you know, and I think that's, that's part of the process of, or that's just something that I felt like has been an important insight for me in, t- in terms of how I, I think about what it is that, you know, that I'm doing as a parent or, you know, that we're doing with our kids. Well, you also, yep. we, sometimes we, we remove the, it's like the kids are in the equation, but the kids are in the, it's kind of goes back to the figurines. Like the kids are in the equation as like this figurine versus like what's really happening. Right. Like I have, I have kiddos who, you know, they're like, mom, why are you going climbing today? Like who asked me that? Right. Like I need more time with you. Um, so I'm like, oh, that's really hard to just move you into that position. I was going to slot you into. Right. Like it just, that's just not how it happens. So I feel like we need to also talk about like how we all want to parent inside of this. Right. And that's, that's also different for everybody, Andrew. And I know for me, especially because how I was raised and I had all the benefit that came with it, that my parents, eventually all four of my parents worked very full-time corporate jobs and it afforded me a lot of opportunity. And I also didn't get to see them very much. And I don't want a parent like that. Like I want to be around and we're also in a different era where like my mom, the only way she could have the kind of job she had was she never was going to pick us up at three o'clock. Like that's like, that was impossible in the late seventies and the early eighties. Right. So like these things are, are shifting. And part of the conversation is like, what is your level of presence at a, as a parent? And, you know, like, and how do you, what do your kids uniquely need that, you know, needs to be provided for them, for you, for you to have a good family environment, whatever that criteria is. And I think that, I think that the, as you were saying, Chris, like not knowing the difficulty of it, but also it can make it such a lonely place because we don't talk about the difficulty. And I think like, those are my best friends, right? Those are my mentors. Those are the people that I most want to hang hang out with. I mean, even when you were sitting in this office that I'm in, Chris, and we were like having a conversation and, and, you know, when you were out in New Hampshire, it's it's like talking about the reality of what we were both dealing with, with however old our kids were at the point that time, like three years old. And I loved it. I was like, oh yeah, this is exactly how I like to talk to people, right? It's not just that like, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's so great. Oh, that was such a cool thing you did. It's like, whoo, how are you hanging in there? Like, have you guys been sleeping? Like, did you have this hellhole happen when like X, Y, or Z regression? And like, isn't it amazing? And isn't it hard? Like, those are like, that's the richness. And I think that's how we also support each other better. And we have to be willing to be in those conversations and then take those public those conversations to a public space. So I've done that in this like really whacked way by writing a very like, uh, as you said, warts and all memoir. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And it's, you know, you mentioned the loneliness, which I think is, you know, I don't necessarily recall that because I think, and maybe it's not unique, but, um, you know, in your situation, it was, it it seemed like it, it was on your side of the equation as far as you and Peter were concerned. I think that maybe was the same way here in my house. But the other, but the thing, the feeling that I was surprised at is sort of the guilt, like of, and again, this I think ties into climbing and that, yeah, it's like, you know, going away and, or using my time like that for, for not just, you know, not just because I want to be around my kid, but also supporting my partner. And I think that was a a huge conflict with, with you, um, and your relationship in the book, um, who was climbing more, who was going away more, who was leaving the other person behind that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was just kind of surprised by that. You know, I think again, you get a little older and your kid gets a little more autonomous and, you realize maybe you haven't screwed them up completely yet. And so the guilt goes away a little bit. Like I think time apart between the two of us, I just spent three days, just me and him. Cause Steph was gone all weekend 
um, yeah, in a little time apart now, I think will probably do us both some good. It's like a normal relationship. But in the early days, it felt really weird. And, you know, and we still, the climbing thing, because my partner's a climber as well, not quite as into it as I am anymore, but that shifted actually with Miles being born. But yeah, we're, we're still, you know, we still do the tit for tat and keeping track. And if you went away, I get to go away. And if you did this many days, I get to do that many days. And, you know, not necessarily uh, a healthy thing to do, but maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's a good way to like keep it all on the table. I'm not really sure. I think the best way to do it is just to, and I haven't achieved this, but this is what I think would be really good. (laughs) Um, It's just to be like, Hey, you're my teammate and whatever you need, I'm going to make happen and vice versa, because I know that you're not going to over ask just like, you know, I'm not going to over ask, but it's so different in practice, right? It's like, it's like having a production meeting, but you live with this person and like every single thing they do, you you're like in the yin and yang of them. So like any like little bump that they have, like you have to adjust for. And I think, you know, that's, you know, like we know it. I mean, I've been, I just recorded a podcast for a working mom hour, right? Like really sitting inside these conversations about what gender division of labor is, what's happening around like, you know, paid family leave. Why are they in the positions that they're in still? Like that was something that was really shocking to me, right? Because you were, we were sort of, you were saying like you and Steph, like you both climbed and then something changed. Who knows why? It could be a myriad of reasons. But for me, before we had kids, I could really pretend that Peter and I were the same person, right? We just had like different interpretations of being climbers in the world. And like, you know, we chose slightly different things, but when it all came down, we were like, we were the same. And then suddenly like I gained 70 pounds to bring our children into the world. Right. And I was in labor for 42 hours and like, you know, all these things happen and you're like, wait, we're not the same. And then we're also not the same in how we're living our lives as parents and the, all of like the subtext that comes with it. Right. I mean, everything from, you know, you know, you think this doesn't happen, but it still does from, you know, teachers calling the mom when the kid's sick or the fact that, you know, we live in a world where now when Peter goes to work as a mountain guide, like he isn't reachable. So suddenly I absorb more of that stuff, but then it, you know, like there's just so much more nuance to this stuff. And I think that that's what becomes like the floodgates for you. And it's really hard to have a Zen space when you're not sleeping well when you're like a little ticked at the world for what's happening. (laughs) And you're also like, oh, wait, how do I fix this? And how do I, if tit for tat isn't working, how do I achieve this higher Zen space? And how do I have time to reach the Zen? And is the person who I'm partnered with also going to Zen with me? Or am I going to have to Zen by myself? And if that's the case, then let's tit for tat it. (laughs) (laughs) How Zen are you? I'm way more Zen than you are. (laughs) I think I'm Zenning harder today. No, you're not. I am. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> see if you can compete about that instead of your climbing days it'd be so good <laughs> who's more chill yeah yeah that'd be so such a good thing for me to aspire toward <laughs> yeah yeah maybe so <laughs> on the on the run out we've talked a little bit about like you know the the mountain parent paradigm to the the extreme parenting the you know the super sports kids the super climber kids the super whatever kids that we're supposed to be raising, um, which I've run headlong into with our kid who's not necessarily into any of that stuff. But living in a mountain town, I felt, you know, and you don't know if these things are internal, external, really, mostly internal, but this pressure to like, yeah, get this kid doing rad stuff like immediately. And, you know, the parenting kind of competition joking about, about zenning harder than somebody else. There's this subtle like who's do, being the raddest with their kids. Um, and it's interesting in the book, you know, you have this revelation at some moment where 
you realize you've just fallen into the old practically or you feel like you've fallen into like the practically like 1950s paradigm of mom does everything and dad does whatever he wants kind of thing. Um, and it's funny how like we imagine ourselves like we're going to be the parents that like, you know, spend every day at every night in a tent or we go on all these rad trips. And it's like, that was one thing too, where everything just crashed apart and our kid is, you know, has special needs. So that's been a, a little bit of a part of it, but it's just funny because it's we're in this world where we think the perfect parenting is something that like regular parents would look at and be, are you effing crazy? Like, why would you do that? But that to us is like this competition that we're going to win around being like super parents. And I feel like in your book, like you, you definitely had a, a you know, that those feelings as well about how we're going to raise these kids and it's going to be so alternative and it's going to be you know, this, this, and this, and then you found yourself just surviving in the same old patterns. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, I remember thinking about that, about naps. I was like, anybody who has to have this nap schedule, they're just so OCD and I would never be like that. And it'd be so much easier. For, and then it's like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I'm all about a nap schedule, right? Like we're making this happen. This is the key to my survival. I mean, you know, just all the ways that you could be wrong. I mean, I had that about nursing. I remember thinking, I didn't even know if I could nurse. I didn't have, a, you know, after caring twins, I was like, let's just, let's just get them into the world and have them be healthy. And nursing worked and it kept working. And I nursed them for over two years, you know, and I used to be that person. I was like, well, I'd never nurse a kid over a year. Cause that's just weird. Like when they can talk and then all of a sudden my babies could talk and they would like come up to me and they'd be like mama milk. And I was like, Oh yeah, adorable. I love, you know, it's like, here I am. Right. You know, like having judged the hell out of the situation, but it's the thing that like, I want to do more than anything. So I, there's a woman who had twins, but you know, who's like seven years older than me. And she just, the whole time when I was pregnant, she would just like rail into me. She's like, don't think you're cool. You're not cool. You're not going to be cool. Like <laughs> let go of any. And I'd go to her with these ideas for trips. I'd be like, what about this? What about this? She's like, would you stop? Like, that's just not going to be possible. And I didn't listen to her. Um, and then I got like, the, you know, my ass handed to me. <laughs> you old red. dummy. You don't know what you're <laughs> exactly. talking about. And then I was like, oh yeah. Now, and you know, and also about that, when you say like, we kind of became this 1950 paradigm, like we didn't, we didn't like it's right. in, like, and, and the reality is that that's what I'm talking about. Like these, in, like all the layers that come in, right? Like mm -hmm. I was doing more because I was the birth parent and I was nursing the kids and all these other things. But I also like could get out of my way enough to see what Peter was contributing sometimes. And I think mm -hmm. that that's part of the irony. And it's again, like this thing where we're like in the same like we're, we're running the same race, but we're not actually looking and seeing like that the person's limping next to us or that they're, uh, you know, like they're the side that we can't see is like oozing blood and it's gonna become a festering wound and they're gonna be super pissed and start hurling it at you or whatever is going to happen. Right. Cause you're just like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's get, let's get through this. And eventually I do think things slow down enough and you're like, Oh, hi over there. <laughs> right. Like how, how do we want to do this? And maybe what have I been missing? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I meant that you perceived it that way. I, yeah. I, I could tell in there. I mean, there was just this part of the book and in a moment in, in it all where you were like, why am I, you know, this housewife basically. And, oh, dude, and I was like so that mad. just went against like, you know, 38 years of your rah, rah, like I'm, I'm super. Cause I would have never imagined upbringing. it was possible. Right. It's like, <laughs> right. how can you be this like thoughtful about this? I used to literally punch people when I was, when I was in second grade who said mankind, like I got in trouble from Mr. Hansen for this kind of stuff. Right. I'm like, how did I become this person? 
<laughs> who is doing this and who's doing the second shift and like you can be that aware and it can happen and the reason it can happen is because of like the way life happens the way social structures right, are right. and i mean that's like i mean that's this bigger nut that i think is really fascinating yeah. that we as a as a as a u.s society really suck at solving and need to do better at well i want to compliment you though for your extreme pumping yeah you were out like you know, in extreme temperatures, guiding and turning away on top of climbs and whipping the pump out. It's pretty fucking incredible, actually. So kudos yeah. to you and the and your and your <laughs> pumping dedication. <laughs> As I said, nursing was pretty pretty important to me, and it's like I wasn't gonna let it go just to go do that stuff, right? I'm like, well, let's see if I can make it all happen. Um, yeah. And it, it, it mattered. At one point I was like at the top of a climb and I really had to pump it. I knew my client was going to take a really long time climbing that pitch. So I just like took the time, got like the holsters set up and then like lean back on the rope and looked down at them and fully had like the hands free pumping set up while I was belaying them to the top of like the third pitch of this thing. That was by far the, the, the weirdest pumping setup that, I had. But that's, I think, worked. the one I'm talking about. But yeah. That, that's, <laughs> and it was cold. It was ice climbing, right? Or was yeah, that ice, rock climbing? Ice climbing? Yeah, yeah. 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 So this is all happening in like multiple layers of clothing. Um, so anyway, I think that's, yeah, it's pretty incredible. But in, there all, should be, you know, in all honesty, yeah. <laughs> I know now I didn't, I, I think Peter understood this then, but I understand it more now. I think nursing was my way to make things calm down. If that makes any sense. Right. It's like, mm -hmm. I have these two beings and it was this, I had like a trick. I had a trick where it's like, we could all get what we needed and everybody would be calm and just present. And I could be calm and be present and not need to be anywhere else. And I miss it even now, right? When like there's all this mayhem going on and there's two these two six and a half year olds and like you can no longer just pick them up and put them in the car because you need to leave, like all these different things, right? And I think that nursing not only was this deep connection for me, but also this like moment of breath. And I was and I was like really determined not to stop it. And because I knew that I needed that for to have some level of I was gonna use the word balance again, but you know, to just to have some calm, some more calm in my life in a really chaotic time. Cause I want to be that Zen parent and I want to be that person who's just like, I'm just here. And, and then, you know, I'd be doing that and I'm like, oh crap, Legato has this new grant and I really got to apply for this and we need to onboard another person. And what if we jump into another country? And like, I, I don't know, the, the brain doesn't stop for me. So um, it forced me to stop and to slow down by doing that. So there's this comic moment. I won't give it away, but essentially uh, Peter calls you out um, about writing this book because there is this irony in, the fact that, um, yeah, in, in all this time when you've got, you know, all these things that are threatening to overwhelm you in terms of work and in terms of, of parenting and everything else, that then somewhere within this, not after, but within this, you then threw this book idea on top of it, and he does call you out for that. Um, so, you know, is that like some sort of personality deficiency? Like, what is the deal with that? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> no offense, I'm just joking. But, oh, no, but yeah, it I mean, is what, what, like wherever you were, like you were like, you know what I should do now? Yeah, is I'll did. just I'll just do this too, right? I'll do more. Yeah, hence the title. I hence the title, right? I think for me, honestly, Chris, that this book was really me finding my way to motherhood. And I couldn't, like, I couldn't not write, like I had to solve this, right? Like, and I had to put the pieces down and something would happen. And I'd be like driving and record these audio files on my phone, just being like, Oh, I, I get it. Right. Cause you get these moments as a parent where nothing else is, always happens to me in the car. And I'm like, Oh, revelation. Right. And I would record it and probably wasn't that revelatory in the moment, but it felt like a really important thing to understand. And it wasn't 
let's write a book because something else is going on. It's like writing, it was writing was my way to take care of myself. Writing was a way for me to like become whole in this and to like get to this other side. I think in the, um, afterward I talk about how I was like carrying like a hot ball of fire through these years and like really trying not to let it burn me or to burn my marriage or to like, I needed to figure out like what, what was making it and where to put it and not have it be destructive. Um, and that has a lot to do with how I was raised and things that I was working out. And I like, that was how I did it. Um, that plus some, uh, you know, some time in therapy, (laughs) but, um, and more of that, but you know, that was really how I was able to make sense of it. So it wasn't an option not to do it, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, it just, I started waking up at four 30 in the morning and you know, that's when I'd write, I became that person who I hated in grad school when I met people like that. And I'm like, Oh, good heavens. You're just like, who are you? And I was like, Oh, that's me now. Yep. Eating my words yet again. Who do you think this book is for? Like, who did you, did you, I mean, I know you didn't write it with someone in mind, but now that it's compiled and, um, you you have some distance to the subject matter, how do you see this being received in the climbing world? I mean, I really think it's for, it's for parents or for people who are thinking about being parents. I mean, I've already had like, you know, people who aren't moms and dads read it. And like, and I was like, wow, did it freak you out? Did it make you not want to do it? They're like, no, it's really interesting to have this different take on it. So I think it's for anyone who is considering parenthood or is in parenthood and to take this dive into like, yeah, I feel more seen. Um, that's been the response that I've gotten from it. And I, I really hope that it's for people who are willing to be in a complicated conversation about the non-Hallmark, the non-Instagram family, the, you know, the, the richness and the difficulty that, and some more richness that makes all this something that we all care so flippin' much about to do well, right? Because like, that's what I see in the parents that I know out there. They're like, yeah, like I really want to pull this off. I don't just want to have kids and like have this be something like a status piece. Like I really want to do it well and it's hard and I'm trying and I want to take care of myself. And I laugh. There are all these things out there like moms, make sure you have personal time. I'm like, okay, climbers do not need that message. right? It's like, have you taken any personal time? I'm like, well, yeah, there's all that climbing that I've been doing. Right. But it's more like, how do you do that? And like we've said, like raise kids in this way that you want to be as an involved parent. And I think that there's a story there and a conversation for us all to have. So that's who I think it's for. I think it's for all of us. Did you get any hell no's when you were like, so are you you're thinking about having kids? You read the book. They're like, oh not yeah, I'm yet. over it now. Thanks. I'm not yet, but that'll be a good poll for the I'm listeners done. of this podcast. If this makes you say hell no, please DM me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, we're talking as though, a little bit as though like, yes, I, I have figured it out. Here is my opus upon, no way. you know, which you can plan the re- your, your pregnancy and your, yeah. and your future children. And you've got, um, what'd you say they are? They're six and a half. What'd you say they six are? Six and a half. The, yeah. yeah. Six and a half, about the same age as, as Andrew and I's, uh, my only and his oldest. Yeah. So what's going on at the moment? Like, what are your, what are your, like the book must've left your hands months ago. Um, yeah, to be it's published good. by now. So I'm I'm sure you're continuing to write um, about these kids because that's what yeah. you do compulsively. It sounds like so. Yeah, what's going on at the moment? 
Yeah, right now it's... What's book two? What's book two going to be about? <laughs> more, it, more... More-er. Some more. So, Peter's more-er. idea was just some more, but with yeah. like a two some with more. more. Yeah, I was like, yeah, really funny. <laughs> he has lots of good titles. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm writing. I'm also trying to take some time so that I can get this book out in the world and trying to not mm-hmm. take time away from my family to do that. So I have not been climbing as much this winter as I have other winters. And that was like a compromise I was willing to make, right? Um, because on this other side, I run this organization legato which is really working to shift conservation to advance climate justice and it's going off right like the last time we talked about legato years ago chris to what it is now i mean we're now working in peru kenya mozambique i have a 19 person team and there's demand for partnerships coming from rwanda and ethiopia and australia and i mean that's a place where i spend my family capital also is in you know being the founder and executive director of that so right now i'm working on given this book and this process and these conversations love while I'm also given my family love and, um, you know, continuing to helm legato. And it's, it's a season, it's a season of pretty intense busyness. I'm pretty excited for, you know, April to be climbing season in Rumney and to kind of shake off the kinks and to get out there and to be excited to be at that other side of it. And what's happening right now, right now is that my children, I hope are finished puking from the uh, double puke fest that we've had for the past 36 hours. <laughs> and you're just going to get feel, started. I feel less like puking now than I did at the beginning. Right Maybe on. you guys helped heal me. You know, come speak on this podcast or li- no, listen to this podcast and you too will not. Could feel get... less like puking. Yeah. It's a great endorsement. <laughs> that's our, that's our baseline. <laughs> our run out baseline. Uh-huh. You will feel less like puking after you listen to us. <laughs> I mean, it kind As of works. To more. If you think about run, you know, like actually being run out on a climb, right? It's got, I mean, <laughs> so I think we're on to something. <laughs> on today's final bit, we feature an excerpt of an interview with Antoine Le Menestral. Antoine and his brother Mark were instrumental in defining first wave sport climbing in France in the 80s and 90s. In addition to pushing grades from 8A to 8C, Antoine stunned the world in 1985 by free-soloing Jerry Moffat's test piece, Revelations, then the hardest route in the UK at 8A+, or 513C. Antoine was one of the first professional route setters in the world before moving on to become a full-time dancer, choreographer, acrobat, and artist. Now, at 57, Antoine Le Menestral still extols his creativity through dance and climbing, and frankly, has a delightfully French attitude toward his legacy. The entire interview with Antoine can be heard by becoming a supporter of The Runout at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yeah, my... My father was a climber, my mother was a climber, and I was a climber in the belly of my mother. So I never started climbing. So in the 18, uh, one uh, sport climbing appeared, I really want to, to be in this move, in this move, in, the, in this creative move, because uh, it was an invention for us uh, of uh, a new climbing. A new vision of climbing, change climbing. And it was uh, very engaged in, uh, in this uh, new thinking of, of, of climb, of we call here in France free climbing. Uh, 
So um, I, I was a challenger. I, I, I would like to, to do uh, every day uh, new routes and more and more hard routes. And in 83, it was the start of my period of, of challenge. So I do a 70, so now I want to do other routes. So I find on the, on the, on the cliff where it's possible to do uh, uh, something uh, harder. And also it was not close to the, another friend of me, my brother, Laurent Jacob, Fabrice, JB. I, I want to, to do something in the age. You, you, more to be more alone because uh, I am a lover so I, I love uh, I love climbing I love uh, the, the wall I, I love women so I want to be alone with my lover of climbing so it's what I, I call uh, the lover it's like a hunter but it's a hunter was alone so I was in, in this dynamic and it was very good to, to be uh, alone for, for this route because you are the route and you. It's a relation between, uh, between the rock and between me. And I was very interested by what is this relation. It's relation only to done it or to done it well or to find a new move. This, this uh, wall of, uh, in Mouriez was very good to, to find the, the good move, the easiest move to go on the top. Do you understand? just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Kalous, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.